0: I'd invite you to turn your Bibles once again to John chapter 9, please. John chapter 9, we've been introduced to a man blind from birth. This past week I visited CNIB's website. That's CNIB, not CBC, not CIBC. Cynthia and I are part of the TD family, but... Um, CNIB is the Canadian National Institute of the Blind. So I visited their website, and on their home page, they ask this question. How many people have vision loss in Canada? And they go on to answer that question this way. Approximately half a million Canadians, that's 500,000, are estimated to be living with significant vision loss that impacts their quality of life, and every year 50,000 Canadians are added to that number. This figure includes people who have no sight from birth, people who are legally blind, as well as people with significant vision loss. What I was really looking for and interested in was finding out how many people in Canada or how many children in Canada are actually born blind. I failed. I'm assuming it's a pretty rare occurrence here in Canada. But of one thing I am certain. Every single one of us are born spiritually blind. Do me a favor for a moment. Close your eyes. Squeeze them tight. And think about it. That's all this man in John chapter 9 has ever known for his entire life. In verses 1 through 12, the Apostle John describes the event here of the man being healed. Jesus initially had to correct his disciples, you'll remember. They wondered, who caused this man's blindness? It was neither the man nor his parents, but in fact, it was something that was going to display the works of God. Now understand that brokenness is a result of original sin. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and the consequences of that decision continues to this very day. There is a ripple effect. But God can use that brokenness, that less than perfectness, to display his works. Jesus spits on the ground. And makes his spit with mixes his spit with the dirt and places this plaster on the man's eyes and then tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He does and comes back with a new set of eyes. And notice I didn't say his sight was restored, because he never once has seen anything in his entire life. Remember, he was born blind. Some commentators see this use of spit and dirt as an allusion to that original event in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God formed man from dust, from the ground. Perhaps, or maybe it was Jesus just setting this man up to take his first steps in a walk of faith. A blind man making his way all the way to the Pool of Siloam. It wasn't closed. Can you imagine that trip? His closest associates, neighbors, and those who knew him as the beggar at the temple gate had no explanation. How is it possible? Even the blind man. Look at verse 32 of John chapter 9. He claims since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. I love his explanation that he gives in John chapter 11. He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received my, seat, my sight. No drama No embellishment, just a simple, clear, concise explanation of what took place. But his neighbors and associates, those who knew him as the blind beggar by the temple, were not buying it. And so they brought him to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, thinking that maybe they could come up with some sort of explanation. Sure enough, the Pharisees launched their own investigation. And remember, these Pharisees were part of that crowd who back in John chapter 5 were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. You see, they saw him as a threat to Judaism that needed to be exterminated, eliminated. Not that that bias would influence their investigation. They interrogated first the blind man, and then his parents. By the way, what kind of parent would allow an impaired son who had been blind from birth to become a beggar at the temple? And what kind of parent would put their relationships with those people at the local synagogue ahead of their relationship with their own son. Maybe they'd grown weary of always being questioned about the sin in their own life. Who sinned? This man or his parents? After finishing with his parents, the Pharisees, by the way, the parents confirmed that it was their son, That he was indeed born blind and that now he sees. But the Pharisees returned to the blind man again, increased the pressure. They wanted him to recant his story or at least find some inconsistency that would allow them to dismiss him. He not only refuses to change anything in his testimony, but he begins to school these teachers in the law. So much so that they take offense. And that's where we want to pick up the story, in verse 30. And if you will, or if you're able, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word this morning, beginning at verse 30 of John chapter 9. Follow along as I read. John chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Well, Here's an amazing thing, he's speaking to the Pharisees, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, And he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who, who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. May God help us to understand this portion of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Thank you for Jesus, the light, the word made flesh. Thank you too for this written word. In the words of the psalmist, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light our path as we study this episode of the life in the life of Jesus this morning may it become as the Apostle James wrote the word God has planted in our hearts for it promises to have power to save our souls and once planted in our hearts May it find good soil and grow up to produce a harvest of righteousness in each one of us. We want to be conformed to the image of your Son. And with you it is possible. So enable it to happen, Father, by your power and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in the ninth chapter of the Apostle John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, John includes a miracle where Jesus heals a man who is blind from birth. It's actually the sixth of seven miracles that John includes in his account. And you'll remember that John doesn't refer to them as miracles but as signs. You see, he looked at them and viewed them as much more than demonstrations of supernatural power, although they were all of that. And so as we come to this demonstration of supernatural power, I hope that we will see it as more evidence that this Jesus was much more than an ordinary man. He was who he claimed to be. The Christ, the Son of God. And if that's all you take away from this story, you've done well. But already, in an earlier message, I've alluded to the possibility that this miracle or sign was pointing to something much more significant. More than Jesus was just truly the Son of God the Christ. Maybe John's purpose was of this sign was to show us something about us. All of us. Specifically that every one of us have been born spiritually blind. In theological terms it's called the depravity of man. This past week I was reading a book that had been recommended to me by another pastor a few weeks back, and I thought the author had some really helpful things to say about depravity. Listen as I read. Think of depravity as a magnet. A magnet pulls a metal object towards itself. The metal object doesn't have have to plan to go, it it just does, it goes. Depravity is an internal magnet in each of us that pulls us toward damaging choices whether we really plan to go or not. One man put it this way, I don't have to, but I can't help myself. Doesn't that sound, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul's internal wrestle that he describes in Romans chapter 7. Remember those verses in verse 19? It says, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. It's a magnet, the author goes on. Don't let the word depravity put you off. We hear it and immediately think of criminals who commit sadistic acts, those that are bottom feeders of society, so rotten that extermination may be the only possible way to rid the world of them. But the word depravity has more a more subtle meaning, than just describing people engaged in horrible deeds. In its essential meaning, depravity is just shorthand for doing and choosing what pleases us personally over submitting to God. Depravity implies that I am capable of doing any kind of ugly, destructive action Because I'm dedicated to pleasing myself instead of God. That's what Jesus is addressing here in John chapter 9, verses 35 to 41. Depravity or spiritual blindness. The Bible also uses darkness as a metaphor for our spiritual impairment. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John chapter 1, verse 5. Later in John chapter 3, it reads, The light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And then, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, left to ourselves, you and I, natural man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. We don't get it. And we can't see it. We are born blind. Every one of us. And there are no exceptions. But in the same way, That Jesus gave a new set of eyes to a man born blind. He and He alone can heal our spiritual blindness. Jesus desires to heal your spiritual blindness. We see it here in these verses His initiative, His disclosure, his mission, and his reasoning all combine to display his desire to heal spiritual blindness. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus took the initiative with the man born blind, in two very specific ways. First, he found him, and then he engaged him in conversation by asking an extremely important question. Jesus heard how the Pharisees had treated him and finding him. That phrase implies that he went looking for the man born blind. And what comes to your mind as you hear that? Is there any story? Turn back with me just for a moment to Luke chapter 15. These are stories that Jesus told. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, all the way to verse 7, find a story of a lost sheep. And then you look at verse 8 through 10, we find a story of a lost coin. And then one that you're sure to be familiar with, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, we find the story of a lost son. Here we have, or actually the you'll know it more probably as the story of the prodigal son. But here we have three parables back to back to back, all communicating the exact same message. And repetition, remember, is important In biblical literature, don't miss this point. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He is a seeking Savior. And apart from his initiative, we will remain spiritually blind. And until Jesus finds us, it will all sound like foolishness to us. That's why Ephesians chapter chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 are written the way they are. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's nothing you and I can come up with. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. All we can do is accept it by faith as a gift. By faith, The man born blind made his way all the way to the pool of Siloam to wash and then came back seeing for the first time in his life. The physical healing at the pool of Siloam was only possible because of the initiative that Jesus took. The same is true for those who are to receive their spiritual sight. We are dependent on Jesus' initiative. And Jesus not only took the initiative to find him, but he initiated a conversation by asking an important question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Interesting title, Son of Man. In the New American Standard Bible, it is used 12 times in the Gospel of John. It appears to be Jesus' preferred way for referring to himself. And it clearly is an indication of his incarnation. It emphasizes his incarnation. In other words, that God, dressed himself in human flesh, became a man and dwelt among us. Fully God and fully man. The Old Testament prophet Daniel also refers to the Son of Man in chapter 7 when he, in his own words, listen to this, wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And part of that summary, in verses 13 and 14, we read this. I kept looking in the night visions, or in the dream, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man. Clearly, Daniel was referring Israel's Messiah. And so Jesus is asking this man who had been born blind, do you believe in the Messiah? That God has a plan, and that plan includes a deliverer who will come up, who will come and set up a kingdom, a kingdom which all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, and a kingdom that will not pass away. It was an important question. And notice how the man responds, his positive response. He communicated an openness to believe, but he needed some more information. Verse 36. Who is he, Lord? That I who is he, Lord? I should mention that, that um, in the Greek. That word kurios, translated Lord, is not capitalized in the Greek, the original language, obviously. And so in this particular context, it's probably referring, it's just a respectful title. and could be translated just as easily, sir. Because at this point in the story, the man clearly does not have an understanding of Jesus' deity. Not yet. But things are about to change. Who is he, Lord? that I may believe in him." That, my friends, is an example of a prepared heart. You may have encountered prepared hearts before in your life. A number of months ago, I received an email from a friend, an associate. It included the following. I'm so tired Of this pathetic, self loathing, self centered, and self indulgent life that I've created for myself. It's time to start doing better. I know that you say it starts with a relationship with God. I don't know what that looks like, and I need help. I can't keep, I'll say, beeping on the things and people that I have been blessed with. I've been provided so much and have left a wake of trash behind me for the last number of years. I'm asking for your help and advice. Thanks for your time and care. The expression of a prepared heart. Jesus' initiative displays his desire to heal spiritual blindness. Jesus' disclosure displays his desire to heal spiritual blindness. Look at verse 37. Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. Jesus revealed himself as the son of man. Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He's standing right in front of you, and he's talking to you. The man responds, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. It's the same Greek word, but on this occasion, I think it's appropriate to capitalize the Lord. The man was recognizing him as his Lord and Savior, the one sent from God, the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, John chapter 1, verse 9. Doesn't this account remind you of that encounter with the Samaritan woman back in John chapter 4? Jesus had engaged her in a conversation as she came out of the city to the well, yet water. At one point, the woman responds to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us in verse 25 of John chapter 4. And Jesus responded to her, I who speak to you am he. Again, Jesus disclosed, his true identity and she hurries back to town tells the townspeople all that had taken place at the well and the story concludes in verses 41 and 42 with these words many more believed because of his word and they were saying to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of Of the world. On both occasions, Jesus' self disclosure led to genuine belief. And don't miss, and he worshiped him. Isn't it a little ironic that he gets thrown out of the synagogue only to be found worshiping the Messiah in spirit? and in truth. Know this, what you and I truly believe always leaks. It always bubbles to the surface. Eventually, our deepest convictions will show up in our behavior, especially when we're under pressure. Genuine belief becomes visible in our confession, And in our demonstrations, in our words and in our deeds, they just do. It's inevitable. The saying is often true, actions speak louder than words. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship accompanies genuine belief. If you have no desire to worship Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in word and in deed, I would encourage you to question the genuineness of your belief. Because belief promotes worship not because we have to or we think it wins some kind of favor with God or others but because we want to worship the author and perfecter of our faith Jesus initiative displays his desire to heal spiritual blindness and so does his self-disclosure but notice verse 39 and Jesus said for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see, who see may become blind. Wait a minute. I thought we studied back in John chapter 3 that Jesus came not to judge, but to save. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved Through him. Is that not a contradiction? Not at all. I like how one commentator puts it. The reason for our Lord's coming was salvation. The reason. But the result of his coming was condemnation for those who refuse to believe. John chapter 3, verse 18 affirms, affirms that truth. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is like that line in the sand. You either believe or you do not believe. He himself said he has come to divide. Look at... Luke chapter 12, again, Jesus admits to that fact. In verse 51, Do you not think I have come to bring peace? Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth? No. I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me, two against. Or two in favor and three against. A father will be divided against his son and a son against his father a mother against daughter and a daughter against mother a mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law jesus came to save but in doing so ends up dividing believers from unbelievers the new international the new living translation renders jesus mission statement here in john chapter 9 verse 39 in this way I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and show those who think they see that they are blind. So the blind are those who are aware of their need, acknowledge that they are spiritually blind, depraved, and there is nothing that you can do about it. On the other hand, those who to be able to see are those who are saying I'm okay I got it they are full of confidence and self-trust and pride and even when their lives begin to kind of unravel they refuse to turn to God they are blind even though they claim to see in Luke chapter 18 We are told this very clear parable. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Jesus is telling this story, verses 9 to 15. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, who was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. One commentator writes this sobering summary Self-satisfied people, the religious know-it-alls, believe they see but are blind. For the soul that desires to remain in ignorance of sin, that prefers his own darkened understanding, there is no hope. Jesus' initiative, Jesus' self-disclosure, Jesus' mission, and Jesus' reasoning displays his desire to heal, spiritual blindness. Look at verse 40 of John chapter 9. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, our sin remains. The way verse 40 is written in the Greek indicates that these Pharisees were 100% sure Jesus was going to say, of course not. Of course you're not blind. Another example of how true Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, really is. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus came into this world to expose our deceitful hearts. Those who think they are enlightened spiritually are actually shown to be blind. And those who have no spiritual insight at all and yet are open and are ready to acknowledge Jesus for who he claimed to be they can be enlightened. Jesus' initiative, his self-disclosure, his mission, and his reasoning display his desire to heal spiritual blindness. And as we reflect on this story, allow me to give you three implications that you can think about in the days ahead. Number one, first of all, apart from God's initiative, We will remain in spiritual darkness. We will be spiritually blind, apart from God's initiative in our lives. Doesn't matter what your IQ is, how smart you are, doesn't matter how good you are, or who you know, or who knows you. Doesn't matter. Our salvation and sanctification are way beyond our reach. We cannot reach it. We are all headed to a Christless eternity. Hell will be our final destination where we will experience pain and suffering forever. And apart from God's initiative, It's going to all sound like foolishness. Like nonsense to us. We'll desire to live and to walk in darkness. Jesus heard that they'd put him out. And he found the man that had been born blind from birth. We all need to be found. Every single one of us. Because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's the first implication. The second implication is for those who have responded to God's initiative in your life and have received spiritual sight. The man formerly blind from birth serves as an inspiring example for us on this. Look at verse 38, and he worshipped him. Can we do any less? Those who have received spiritual sight, worship. It's that simple. You worship the one who went out looking for you and found you. This morning, we're going to have a unique opportunity. Well, first of all, we've Come and we're worshiping corporately, but today is that second Sunday of the month where we come to gather and participate at the Lord's Supper, and Jesus invites all genuine believers to come and participate in this meal of remembrance. So this is not my supper; it's not the elders of the Rock Community Church supper; it's not even the Rock Community Church's supper. This is. The Lord's Supper, and his invitation goes out to anyone and everyone who is trusting Jesus Christ alone for their their salvation, to come, to come to the table, and eat the bread, which reminds us that Jesus became a man; he was indeed the Son of Man, the Messiah, God dressed in human flesh, fully God and fully man. That's what the bread reminds us of. And then to drink the juice, which reminds us of Jesus' shed blood. Without the blood, there is no life, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin or spiritual life. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life and shed his blood to pay the price for our sin. In fact, the sins of the whole world. But we appropriate that. It becomes our sin as we place our faith in him. His death paid the price for your sin and my sin. So that his righteousness can become our righteousness. Our sin is paid for by Him. But before we go there, there's a third implication that I don't want us to miss here in this story. Our spiritual sight is not just for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. Spiritual sight is essential for both salvation and sanctification. Our salvation is not the finish line. It's the starting line. We are now in the race. John chapter 14 verse 21 puts it this way. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and will disclose myself to him. Obedience, disclosure. And folks, the disclosure continues. As we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, allow me to encourage you to reflect on Jesus' initiative, Jesus' self-disclosure, Jesus' mission, and Jesus' reasoning, as he explains to these Pharisees, what spiritual sight is all about. And you know, Jesus desires to heal your spiritual blindness. And not just for salvation, but for your sanctification. So that you can become more and more like Jesus. Conformed to his image. Obedience, disclosure, transformation. This time we're going to invite those who will be serving with me this morning. We're going to invite you, because this is summer holidays and people are coming and going, we're going to ask you this morning to come to the table. Take the elements. Take a piece of bread and then a cup and then return to your, your seat and after everyone's received the elements, I'll ask us to, to eat and drink together. But before you come, allow me to lead us in a time of prayer. Father, thank you for Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things. He creates eyes that see both physically and then even more importantly, spiritually. Thank you that you sent him, that he lived a perfect life and then died a horrible death to pay the price for the sins of the whole world. And that you've opened our eyes spiritually so that we've been enabled to respond appropriately to this demonstration of your love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died, not just for the sins of the world, but for our sins specifically. And we admit that we are a sinful people, depraved from birth, born blind. Thank you for restoring our sight. We pause to reflect on the bread that represents Jesus, the word that became flesh and lived among us and this juice that represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us to purchase our forgiveness. Lord, we believe and we worship you by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.